Hello. Welcome to the sixth episode of the Hamilton Review of Book podcast. I'm Alex Kerner. This is the last episode of the season, and our guest today is another member of our editorial board, James Cairns, who will introduce himself more properly during the episode. The focus of today's episode is the genre of memoir and essays, which has gotten a lot of attention in recent years. We'll also have a good discussion about one of the big sellers in this genre, Sarah Polly's new essay collection, Run Towards the Danger. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to this episode, James Cairns. Uh, I hope that's how I pronounce your name. I've known you for so long, and I hope I've never mispronounced it. Uh, you are exactly right. No one says it better than you. Thank you. That's great. Uh, you have not been a guest on this podcast yet, but you did help me out recording a mock episode when I was first starting out, which I yes. actually think sounded quite good, and we could have actually run with it. Uh, but now we're going to do it for real and see how it Great. James uh, do you want to give us a bit of an introduction about who you are and where you're from sure well I am uh, a, a senior editor with the Hamilton Review of Books working on the what matters now section which focuses on nonfiction with a political bent and so that's my main association with with the publication I am a uh, Professor of Social and Environmental Justice at Wilfrid Laurier University. I grew up in a very small town, a town of 80 people north of Kingston, Ontario, and lived there for uh, many years, and then in Toronto for many years while living uh, in a few different places along the way, New York, San Francisco, Saskatchewan, and I now live in uh, Paris, Ontario, and I'm looking at the greening grass on the gorgeous lawns of Paris while we speak. It's a beautiful day today, and of course, we're going to do this stay inside. Yes. Uh, it is also 420, so <laughs> there's a lot going on today. So we're talking about, and the theme of this episode are memoirs, uh, which I guess fits really well into, I guess, some of the things that you've been editing for the review uh, and your larger interests. And as we know, the book we're going to talk about later on is Sarah Pauly's Run Towards the Danger, uh, which I think encapsulates a lot of this idea of like, political nonfiction. Mm -hmm. So, but before we get delve into Polly's work, can you tell us a bit about why you're interested about talking about memoirs and essay collections yeah. as a genre? Yeah, I mean, I for me, the the my love of memoir and essay writing is really wrapped up in my own relationship to writing. I I will try not to go on and on about it, but I have for about a year been working on a collection of essays uh, around the theme of crisis, um, looking at, at the concept of crisis and our use of it and how crisis gets uh, defined or not defined, both with respect to social struggles as well as, as in my own personal life uh, and, and others' personal lives. Um, and uh, I, I should say at this point, <laughs> to clarify why it's so important to me in my, my, my writing, it's a good example of this very moment as I stumble for words. For me, when I'm writing, this is the only time where I ever feel satisfied with what I have to say. Um, and 
that is uh, perhaps somewhat surprising or disappointing for someone who spends the majority of his uh, paid working life lecturing in front of students or, <laughs> or you know, talking to you here on, on the podcast. But, but, but just about at any other point in my life, when I'm speaking, I'm rambling or doubling back or missing my main point or, um, uh, you know, which leads me later feeling ashamed or, or, uh, uh, disappointed somehow. And, and with writing, I have the chance to, to plan, to shape and reflect on what I'm trying to say as, as, as directly and clearly and concisely as possible. And I, I think for me, reading other memoirs, I often get a sense of this person trying to do the same thing. Um, and so I was, an example would be Leslie Jameson, the American uh, essayist, has a, a, a book a few years ago called The Recovering, in which she's, 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 she's writing a critical analysis of the recovery narrative um, and, and kind of asking if it's possible for uh, a recovery narrative, somebody who comes out of addiction, to ever be mm. um, fresh, original, uh, or or, or is there only kind of one banal uh, recovery trope? While at the same time, she's making sense of and sharing and, and kind of working through her own process of, of drinking and recovery. And, and it just feels with every word of that book that she's, she's trying to say something important that defines who she is and, and, and brings something to the reader. Um, and that sort of thing... I think inspires my own approach. I just recently read uh, a, a several um, memoirs by Paul Oster, and one of them stands out to me in which he's, it's, it's called his, The Winter Journal, and he's, he's kind of conveying or remembering or recalling his life as lived through a body. And so he's writing about, you know, where his body has lived, the, the food that's gone into his body, the sensations of different aspects of his life. And I, you know, that would never have occurred to me to write that way, and I may never do so. But, but reading somebody else's different attempt at at telling their story is uh, inspiring, invigorating. Um, Paul Oster's, as as you know, is one of my favorites, and I've read that one. Are his previous memoirs like earlier in his life? Yeah, I think that's his most recent one, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, it's it's interesting. the 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 earliest of his memoirs was actually one of his earliest pieces of uh, of of writing in his sort of um, the period after which he began to be published, which is later in his life than you might think, given he's so prolific. He didn't really start getting published and known until he was in his late 30s or early 40s. And it's called The Invention of Solitude. And it's actually the one that I don't have. Um, but I think it was published in the late 70s, early 80s. And it's about the loss of his dad. But, uh, there are others from one from 1986. Oh, yeah, it's a wonderful little one called... Uh, or maybe that's 92, The Red Notebook, which is just these, ser- is these short snippets of true stories that all center on just the most wonderful coincidences, each of them different in its own way, that kind of builds up to a sense of the magical interconnectedness of, of life without him ever saying, you know, this is what this memoir is about. There's just these snapshot stories that he's, he's telling from, uh, 
from people that he's picked up along the way. Um, and then, yeah, a couple of others from the 90s. He, he's so fascinating just because, and, and I'm sorry to get trapped, you know, you brought up Oster and you, you set me up there. But, he, you know, his work is so, even his fiction is, is you can tell there's even the postmodern stuff, this tinge of self-reflection and autobiography. He often, named, I think in more than one occasion, the main character's name is Paul Oster. Even his more recent 4321, there's all sorts of elements that are almost historical records of events he experienced. So it's uh, fascinating to see how he can how he moves both in fiction and nonfiction in terms of this in this introspective literary space and and does so in such a unique way. The one that I I just finished called it's a long essay called Hand to Mouth and it's from 1996 and it's the story of decades of really seriously struggling financially while maintaining a strict I think he would say I mean a a ludicrous commitment to being a writer and not taking sort of the wise conventional decision of finding a career that pays, you know, from paycheck to paycheck sort of thing. And so it's all these stories of ways that he made money and kind of put together, sustained himself in different places and times while writing. And and he, you know, he he was a, a sailor on a, well, he was a sailor. He was a he was a sh- a cook and a and a janitor on an oil rig for a period. He was a um, you know he worked at a publishing house. He looked after somebody's house in Paris for a period. Did all kinds of translating from uh, French to English to make ends meet. Not because he was su- such a passionate translator, <laughs> um, but the but the one that stands out to me is and and it's sort of it's one of the last things in the essay. He tells this big long story about his last ditch effort, and this was really I mean this was serious. He he'd had his first kid. It was within the year his marriage was falling apart, and he had to somehow try to make money. And what does he do? He he goes back and remembers this card game that in which you kind of fantasize a baseball game taking place. It's called Action Baseball. It's played with 96 individual cards that he creates and one person flips it over as the pitcher and the other person flips it over as the batter. And they and you you play out this this baseball game and he he like takes it to a toy convention and tries to sell it and he's humiliated in a thousand different ways like it's both it's sort of an incredible life as as well as uh uh you know tragic except for it's not so tragic because he comes a you know the most renowned American author today but mm. but uh, yeah that was um, his his plain way of telling these incredible stories is uh, a joy so when you're Picking up these memoirs, what what are the things you're looking for in collections or in, in a larger memoir? What are the the salient points that you really make you embrace one of these? Yeah, I, I think I think that there's two things that are quite different. One tends to be at times I'm aware that I'm looking for something looking for a window on something very different from my own experience. So I've never lived in crushing poverty. Reading Jeanette Wall's The Glass Castle is kind of profoundly instructive about the just day-to-day horrors of, of, of living without. Richard Wright's memoirs, both about growing up as a boy in Jim Crow South, uh, as well as American Hunger, which is, which is lesser known, but, but in American Hunger, when, when uh, he's living in, uh, in Chicago, 
and he becomes involved with the Communist Party. And, you know, that insight into what it would have been like to be a member of the American Communist Party when it was a living, breathing organization with deep social roots and all the contradictions of that, like both the, yeah. the, the, um, the power of it, but also the, the, the terrible um, narrowness and, and deceit and so on that went into that. You know, those are just lessons that you can't find elsewhere. They're far outside my existence. Carmen Aguirre's uh, something fierce, you know, about fleeing the Pinochet regime through the mountains of, I of Chile. I love that. So, so do I. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. yeah it's, an, it's amazing. My parents obviously are uh, Chilean uh, refugees as well. Uh, what, have they read they, it? Uh, I think my mom has. I don't think my dad is. And I think... Uh, there were some shared commonalities. My my mom, I think, was a, a member of the Mirror for a short yes, time, yeah. which was like kind of the Gavaris group. And they had a, a large membership in Canada for a period yeah. of time in the years uh, after the coup. And I think that's where she's at as well. I It's funny. These, you're, you're giving us some really serious, meaty memoirs. And I, I have to admit that I'm, a, I'm also a fan of food memoirs yeah. and celebrity memoirs. Which are like totally the opposite of the half that you have provided. But like, um, I've like, I loved, uh, I recently read, like, I love cooking and I think you know that. And it's uh, so I've like, I love uh, David Chang, uh, who wrote, who started the Momofuku restaurants and he has a show on Netflix and he did one, I think it's something peach. I can't recall what it was called. It was great. Stanley Tucci had one this year that I read. uh, And obviously Bourdain's uh, Kitchen Confidential. Yeah, I've never read anything by him like people love love his writing i love folks talking about food in an intelligent Mm. way that also situates food culture within larger societal contradictions and um, yes it's uh so anyways that's probably my but i it's funny because I, I was thinking before we talked i was trying to think of what's the first memoir i ever read and it was probably i can picture the cover it was it was wayne gretzky's memoir probably just <laughs> called gretzky i think it had like a, you know, a shiny red elevated text on top of the white cover and he's standing in his la king's uh uniform and so somehow i managed to swallow the uh the um uh, his traitorousness in leaving Edmonton and going to <laughs> LA. And and that brought me endless joy as a kid reading that. But I don't, I don't read celebrity memoirs, sports memoirs, food memoirs. And, and I, I should reflect on that because it probably has to do more with just a general kind of latent academic snootiness than it yeah. does about what I would really enjoy. But but I, I should say, I mean, the other thing that I, I tend to read memoirs for, and, and some of my friends are critical of this, is is I also think I look for things that are very familiar to my experience and, and maybe thinking that they could help me see something I've missed. Like Wallace Shawn, you know, uh, the, 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 the you actor, know, his experience yeah. is, yeah. is an actor, he's a middle class, you know, playwright, writer, um, writing about socialism. I mean, this is not so different than my world, but the way that he cuts in, you know, the fact that he, he, he's not drawing on social theory, but on, on people's experiences and anecdotes and this kind of stuff. I find that exciting. Um, you know that I love Karl of Knossgaard and yes. his <laughs> reflections on on shame and, and fatherhood, even if they don't, they're not exactly the same as mine. They, they're similar spheres of experience that I enjoy as well. I, I think that beyond the kind of themes that I've just mentioned, there's this quote that stands out to me by the essayist uh, Alyssa Gabbert, who had a 
really wonderful collection of essays called The Unreality of Memory a few years ago, which, which is a loosely connected uh, uh, set of essays about um, disasters, or I guess they, the theme is disasters. And I, I saw her tweet recently um, something about the delicate balance she's always aiming for between putting the idea in the essay and letting the essay be the idea. And I, you know, I've never, I don't think I've ever managed to achieve that, but I think that it's the right aim. And, and I think that when you read someone who manages to do that, you know it and it's, it's powerful. So in terms of your, your choices of memoirs and essays, how do you, how do you see that in relation to your reading of fiction? Because you, I also know you read tons of fiction. And so how do you situate, like, what do you, how do, yeah, how do you situate your memoir reading yeah. within that broader context of your reading yeah. life as a whole? Yeah, it's, I think it's very different. I think the primary difference is that anytime that I'm reading memoir, I mean, I am thinking first and foremost, or, or maybe that's not the right way to put it. I, I, there is an underlying expectation of truth. Mary Carr talks about this in, in her book, The Art of Memoir, that the minute you start writing an essay or a, a memoir, you know, you're making a promise, a commitment that what you tell is the truth. Um, Auster says the same thing. Basically, if you want to tell me a story, go ahead and tell me a story, but that's not, that's not a reflection. That's not a memoir. And of course, we choose the facts we use. Of course, we rearrange the story. And, and arguably, you know, fiction also aims to look at questions of but truth, it's different right it's... but it's a different but it i absolutely and, and so i wonder why i pull it out here but it is different though there there is an empirical truth to the the claim of this being lived experience whereas fiction i agree with you grapples with the philosophical question of yeah. truth more broadly but but there's something about that every word is a matter of saying i did this i saw this that i don't know it it, it just reads differently so where do you me. situate um, auto fiction which was a huge fad. I think it's kind of, thankfully, uh, winding yeah. down. But in terms of where do you think that fits in? Because autofiction, for the most part, claims to fictionalize true events in someone's life. Where do you think that fits into this larger conversation? It, 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 it's not memoir. It's fiction. And, and it's, it's a fiction that I love and it's memoiristic. But, but, but the very fact that... Um, you know, in autofiction, there are long passages of dialogue that are simply imagined. Yeah, they're 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 fabricated, and that's that's fine. And and to be honest, I mean, one of the things about Nascar's my struggle that that I find so magical is is the use of conversation. You know, first person direct dialogue that goes back to being a six year old, being a seven year old, that reads as though it's truth, that, that is, is sort of exciting and strange because precisely it isn't truth. And he made that up and, and he, he can conjure this. So I want to challenge you on this because uh, Black Boy, which is Richard Wright's, one of Richard Wright's biographies, yes. we, I, I did an American history major and we read that as one oh, of okay, the, okay. our uh, texts in a tutorial. And my professor, issued a question at the end of the tutorial do you think it's a reliable source and he questioned its reliability because there's all sorts of uh detail especially in Wright's very early years that he just did not yes. think 
he would have remembered in that level of detail yes. as an adult. Yeah. And so that kind of undermines this idea, like, is this a memoir? Is this autofiction? What's going on, at least in yeah. components of Wright's work? And I'm curious how, you know, in, in memoir style, we're still dealing with memory and there has to be a degree of creation involved there. Maybe not explicitly so, and you're trying to be accurate, unlike the works of fiction, but sometimes there is i'm getting all postmodern on you <laughs> james sorry no 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 no. Yeah. i mean i i think i think that i i, I would say this i mean I, the the fact is is that there I, i'm not saying that that standard of of truth or accuracy is always achieved and i think that can be with greater or lesser consciousness on behalf of the writer but but i don't know there's something about that claim that 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 distinguishes it for me. There's an anecdote. I wish I could remember exactly where I'd heard it and and uh, and how it goes because it's really snappy. But but it's the author, um, uh, the guy that wrote *Angela's Ashes*, uh, Frank McCourt, yes. uh, is at a dinner party, and basically somebody, you know, the person beside him is. I don't. I, I wish I could remember. I, I won't be able to tell it as well. But somebody's sort of fawning all over him and going all over. Well, you know, you would have. You would. You would know this and believe this and all this stuff. And he essentially says something like, you know, this wacko thinks they know me because they've read my memoir. <laughs> and what he's, you know, it's basically saying like, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a story. It's I told about myself. Yeah. You know, like he's he's rejecting the idea that that is the truth or the full truth or anything else. But, but still that there's, that is the distinction for me. I, I also think because there's that, that, that is part of what I'm reading in memoirs. And I think it feels a lot harder work than, than reading fiction. It feels closer to my paid work. You know, it's more like a, I'm not able to let go of a critical analysis in the same way that I can when I read fiction, which isn't that I think is fiction pays less. I, I, on the contrary, I, I probably lots of times I get more out of it, but there, I do read it differently. I also think I, I think I just read with a more competitive edge when I'm reading a memoir or an essay, which is a terrible <laughs> thing like, to say. And I, I, I wish I didn't, but exactly. I mean, I, you know, like I read, I don't know, life after life, or I, I told you, I just read station 11. I mean, I can just stand in awe of that book. I, I, I could never write that book. I have no idea how she did it. And it is absolutely um, uh, wonderful. And, you know, I, I read a wonderful memoir and I think like, could I, could I do, do that? that? Like, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, yeah. Or I, or, you know, couldn't I try to do that? Well, you and, could get a ghostwriter uh, if you're really struggling. And <laughs> yeah. So what are your favorite memoirs or essay collections? If you're recommending to our listeners, uh, where you're going to pick up because I think memoirs are a very popular genre. I think they probably have wide readerships, maybe even more so than some of the heavier literary fiction that you and I like to read. Uh, so, so where would you want to take someone? These days, you know, I, I do, I just have a growing pile of books that touch somehow on um, crisis, disaster, uh, uh, breaks in time. And so Alyssa Gabbert, you know, Walter Benjamin's writing on, on history. Uh, the Sarah Pauli book actually really fits this well. It has a lot to say about that. Um, but but I, I think what I would recommend to people, and certainly what I've done, or what I realized not intentionally, but looking back, is that I tend to read more in according to areas or themes, uh, sort of like you, Alex, saying that 
you're looking for food memoirs or, or something like that. And, and I have read, you know, if there is a drinking memoir out there, a recovery story or, or not even a recovery story, just a memoir of alcoholism, addiction, then I've read it. And so Sarah Heppola's Blackout, um, Jameson's book, which I mentioned before, The Recovering, uh, Caroline Knapp has a really wonderful memoir called Drinking a Love Story, which, which captures the, the, the way in which we fall in love with, with our, um, you know, our, our addictions or our substances. Uh, it's actually really sad that she, she wrote that book and it's so powerful and I read it and it really spoke to me. And I, I ended up looking up how she's doing to sort of see, you know, what has she written since then? And, and she died of lung cancer, not so long after uh, that, that book, but uh, so drinking memoirs and then writing memoirs is the other one for me, John Hall's life work, Annie Dillard's writing life. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I have to say that one thing that is, is not my favorite, which I wish it were because I would be so much more, erudite to name Montaigne and Hazlitt and Johnson and the classics. But I, I've tried those, those f- f- kind of founding essayists and I, I don't, they, I can't connect. I, I wish I could, but I don't. So I, I, I read a couple of author memoirs this year uh, that came out. Yeah. One is uh, Bernadine Evarista's book called Manifesto, yes. which is a very political uh, orientation to the idea of the memoir. It was excellent. Uh, and yes. then, and I hate to say this because I know you and I aren't crazy about Jamie Attenberg, but her memoir was boring <laughs> and it was so disappointing. And I think I've... Oh, really? Oh, it was so well reviewed. Yeah. And you know what? It might be me. Or maybe, but I've seen other people with similar kinds of feelings mm. about it. Uh, is that, you know, I have read almost everything she has written and I have been disappointed every single time despite glowing <laughs> reviews. And I think this has happened uh, with various uh. authors. It's like I love the middle scenes, it was so well done. And I've been trying to get that, that chasing that dragon <laughs> repeatedly, and it just has not come. And, and at some point, I have to give up. It's the same thing that happened with Ian McEwen, right? I read Atonement, and it was like, yes. this is amazing. And then, like, you try to find that feeling again, and it just he cannot replicate it, which is not uncommon yeah. in, in, in the literary world where someone creates a masterpiece and then it's like trying to replicate that becomes their their struggle and as a reader we get to join them in this unsatisfactory struggle that they're going through so uh, so anyways yeah Attenberg's was it was disappointing uh so yeah. I wouldn't people if you're into her it, it just it felt like it was unclear what it was trying to do it was it, tracing her life and it, it delves a bit into some of her struggles to get published but it almost felt like it avoided with a, any of like the the nuts and bolts of her process or or what she was mm-hmm. going what she's trying to get at thematically and it was more like interested in the mundaneness and the obstacles that were also mundane in her life as a whole and and it felt and compare that to Evaristo who had a much more uh you know she comes from radical parents in the 1970s who were in the socialist workers party in the UK she she like right away like gets attracted into to radical theater in the in the early 1980s and she's exploring her own sexual identity throughout this period of time it's like mm. it's so and and at the same time engaging through her 
her process of trying to become a writer, initially a playwright and then a novelist, I just found it significantly more engaging. And I have to say, I listened to both of them on audiobook, and Evarista narrates her own. She's a great narrator, and someone else narrates for Attenberg, and it it also helped it fall flat. Mm-hmm. Well, I was I had planned to read it, but I I don't think I will. Yeah, Evarista's <laughs> is worth read, it. Um, you 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 recommended, I think, to me, Alexander Cheese. Is that called uh, How to Write an Autobiography? biographical novel yes the the essay collections which is also wonderful yeah. it's amazing yeah it's a that's the kind of that's the kind of thing that that uh, i don't know there's something about the play with the form that allows it to be both un, unraveling or revealing parts of the self while while never letting go of of the social um you know quirky uh, or unexpected, unfamiliar focus yeah. while never losing contact with the reader. I mean, that, you know, I, I don't know anything about tarot cards and I, I, you know, like, that's just not a part of my existence. But that, that essay that he has on tarot cards is just amazing. I remember every single one of those essays starting off the first few pages and feeling kind of lethargic. And it's like, what's going mm. on here? And then by the time you finish the essay, you're like, oh my God. And it was like that. Yeah. And, it, and then he kept on repeating that experience throughout the whole book. Yes, yes. And yeah, yeah, definitely. Went. And like I, I really like Alexander Chi. I've read a, um, mm-hmm. his, uh, some of his fiction uh, and uh, which one, The Queen of the Night, which was beautiful. I haven't read his initial book, but he's also like super interesting on Twitter comes from an yes, activist he he background like friendly yeah, and, so yeah. I think all those things uh-huh. kind of like create this uh, very um, robust biography or experience that yes. he really conveys and yeah there's this great stuff with the tarot cards was it just one essay or I thought I thought he used that as kind of a hook in several of the essays I can't recall it's been a while it's the the, the first one in particular where that stands out as his kind of guiding um uh, what you know, whatever his map, or uh, that's the one that I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of. So, who, since we read a lot of literary fiction, who do you want to see a memoir from that you haven't gotten yet? <laughs> we are in in Hamilton or the greater the greater Hamilton area, and I, I got to say, Gary Barwin. Um, you know, Gary Barwin can do anything. I, I really think he has an incredible mind. He has uh, just endless talents in every direction. Uh, he's politically grounded. Everything he thinks is, is, is historically informed, but he's playful, he's silly, he's strange. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'd love to see what he would do with a memoir. Uh, he, in his essays, he often works from an image to a broader relevance while never disconnecting from, from the concrete, from the image. I'm thinking specifically of something he wrote I wish I could remember where, but it, it, it's on the library, his his personal library, and you know his descriptions of his his grandparents' library and 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 his own and what it looks like and where it how it sprawls and how it came together and what it means to him and then go, and then moving into uh, reflections on the library as an institution and so on while while always being um, uh, while never losing that that kind of personal grasp that that he's begun with is is uh it's exceptional and i I, i'd love to think that one day he would write something um i don't know anything more from zadie smith i'd love to read her work uh as a category (laughs) i'd love to read more memoirs from from really thoughtful dads okay (laughs) there's not a lot of dad memoirs out there 
that are not either like too macho. There's kind of a dad memoir, a dad essay that's like, you know, I, I'm, I'm terrible at this. Isn't that hilarious? Or is just too saccharine, too, too sentimental. Um, but I see that, you know, Keith Gessen, uh, the novelist who wrote, uh, what's that called? A Terrible Country, this novel about Russia. I haven't read it. No. And uh, one of the, I, th- I think he was one of the founders of N Plus One. But anyway, he's got a, a memoir called Raising Rafi about the first six years of his son's life coming out this summer. And, and I'm looking forward to seeing what he does with that. Yeah. Well, Shab- didn't Shabon write the book Pops? It's an essay collection? I read that, yeah. yeah. It's it's good. It's 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 good. It's a little it's a little on the light side, but there's some good stuff in that. Yeah, um, and I I like it. Did you read yes, it? Yes, I did. I listened to it as yeah. Uh, I think right after my daughter was born, so I was very tired, so I didn't necessarily digest much of it. Uh, but I did enjoy it. And I like Shabon. You know what? Yeah. You know what stands? So no, you know what stands out to me from that? I I rem- I think of it all the time when he talks about how. And he he wasn't gonna have kids, and then and then he's talking to someone at a at an event, and and I can't remember whether he's gonna have kids or his first one's coming or something like that. And you know that it's you know who it is, right? It's um, it's that asshole uh, that uh, spit on. Um, oh, Richard Ford. On, on a, Richard Ford, yeah. yeah, that that's got to be who who it is. Says you lose a you lose a novel for every kid. You lose a book for every kid you have, and and Shabon sort of ends up saying like he has four kids and he sort of is like, I don't care. well, <laughs> yeah, that's right. He sort of ends up with a it's it's almost I don't think he means it as nihilistically as he sounds, but he kind of is like, well, you know, in the end we all die anyway, yeah. so who cares? And, <laughs> and for any listener I, I who's wondering why we called Richard Ford an asshole. <laughs> Uh, he yeah. he spit in, in I think in the face of Colson Whitehead after Colson had written a, a negative review of his books, and at that point Colson Whitehead was just an up and coming author, and Ford was like the senior statesman, the dean of, of yeah, American right, literature, right, right. right? And I think it's it has yeah. tarnished his reputation ever since, right? And it probably hasn't yeah. helped that uh, Whitehead has become the, the statesman of, of, of American literature at this yeah. point. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm thinking too, too conventionally. What, what about you? What, what, who do you want to see writing a, a memoir? I guess from a, a, from a literary perspective, like obviously I love Ishiguro and I don't think Ishiguro has really delved yes. into his personal life very much. Yeah. Um, I don't know if Rushdie has written uh, a formal memoir. Uh, I know he's done essays and, and has like semi-autobiographical fiction. Uh, and I have mixed feelings about Rushdie. I think The Midnight's Children is probably the best book of the last 50 years. Uh, but I also recognize he's written a lot that has been below quality but his life just because of the nature of it and what happens after satanic verses and and unfortunately i would suggest his politics shifted significantly to the right in response to that it it would be be just a fascinating look at like his inner workings or what's going on but yeah i guess that's it in terms of literary like which athlete will i want it the problem problem with a lot of sports and i i I am interested in sports memoirs is that they tend to be uh more pr stunts than um than athletes and that's one of the reasons i'm really interested and i have it on hold and i'm going to get it eventually is andre agassi's uh memoir because he lays it all out including like developing a, a meth 
addiction while he's on tour. Yeah, oh, wow. And, and like, I, I think the last line is, uh, I hate tennis, was his response. Oh, yeah. Oh, so wow. I think, I think yeah. that one is one of the more like honest, introspective looks at what the sports industry does to people uh and he's obviously Kaepernick yeah Kaepernick would be an amazing yeah for sure right yeah I know and I think that would be I'm sure he 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 will at some point as well so you you know what it strikes me while while we're talking about uh, sorry one more point I I just it occurs to me that that some of the I think I think the best sense I ever got of of history in motion or the or the rapidity with which social change can begin to take place through movements in motion has been through the memoirs of whether, whether Victor Serge or, or uh, uh, um, Trotsky in the Russian Revolution. But, but those, you know, Tariq Ali's memoir of the 60s, and um, I'm forgetting her uh, name, uh, it'll come to me, but uh, who writes about her role in socialist feminist movements and, and Marxist uh, groups through the changes of the sixties. I don't know. There, there's, there is something that the personal story can get at that, that, a scholarly. Well, I've heard that Angela Davis's new autobiography is great. Yes, 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 and yes. I'm definitely yes. planning to pick it up, uh, as soon as I get a chance. Uh, to get through so we're going to leave it at that for now so we're going to take a short little break and uh and then when we come back we're going to talk about sarah Polly's new book okay we are back Um, And we are here talking about Run Towards the Danger, which is a new essay collection slash memoir by Canadian uh, actor, director, writer, uh, Sarah Polly. And it's, I think, five or six essays, very personalistic ones that uh, range from early childhood issues of being in the the movie industry uh, to overcoming uh, a very serious head injury that she had a few years ago. Uh, Sarah Polly, obviously, as most people here or listening know, was in Road to Avonlea as a, as a, a young actor and then appeared in a series of other films uh, and then later on in life moved on uh, to writing and directing, uh, including uh, the Oscar-nominated Away From Her. And she's going to be in the news in addition to this book all this year because she is about to uh, release later in the year Women Talking, which is a film that is already getting Oscar buzz. And it's uh, based on uh, Miriam Taves' book that was uh, very highly regarded. And it features Frances McDormand and a series of other A-list uh, Hollywood folks. So uh, wow. so we're going to hear a lot about Sarah Polly in the next year. Uh, and just as a little anecdote, but we start, uh, I, I do find I'm an Oscar buff and I listen to a bunch of podcasts and and <laughs> they do like a way too early uh, Oscar predictions for next year. And this came up, obviously, and in the Vanity Fair's show, Little Gold Men, they preface Polly by saying the never can do wrong <laughs> Sarah Polly. And so she obviously has like a good record of, of, 
of stuff. Uh, and it's ironic because she all she describes herself as uh, as an unmotivated <laughs> individual because she doesn't, you know, she doesn't aim to, I think, be a, a celebrity in any way. But uh, so anyway, she she does have a good record. So I'm looking forward to that. But let's talk a bit about uh, this book, Run Towards the Danger. Uh, James, you want to give us a bit of a background and maybe delve in a couple of the essays? Yeah, I mean, I should start by saying I, along with everybody else, as far as I can tell, feel that this is a really excellent book. This is a, it's, it is extremely rewarding reading on a number of different levels. It, it's a memoir, but it's not organized chronologically uh, and it's not comprehensive. Um, it is, she says in the opening, uh, the most dangerous stories of my life. And they are stories that she hasn't told publicly. And so they are about being exploited as, a, as an actor, illness uh, at different points, at different people, uh, her pregnancy and, and birth of her, of her first child sexual assault and the Gian Gomeshi case and the loss of, of loved ones. But in addition to the book being about these specific episodes that she tells so well, I, I, I really appreciated the opening. It's very short. I think it's a three-page opening um, uh, intro or foreword, which, which sets the tone for the book as being also about the way in which her present self as a 43-year-old, I know this because she's a year older than me, uh, has been, how her present self has been shaped by those experiences that she's writing about and how those experiences, not just the memories of them, but actually what they were and what they mean, you know, has shifted through her retelling in the present. And I know that that sounds confusing and, and sort of nonlinear, and it's supposed to be. Um, mm. She doesn't quote Walter Benjamin, but I think she very well could have uh, in his thinking about the kind of the back and forth, the, um, the dialogue between the present and the past and, and how they bear upon one another. And so I actually would just read from that first opening bit. I won't, won't read anything else, but, but this really struck me as what the book is about. She says, I have been acutely aware that my childhood experiences inform my current life. I have until recently been less conscious of the power of my adult life to inform my relationship to my memories. When I was lucky enough to have experiences in adulthood that echoed pivotal, difficult memories and to have those experiences go another better way than they had in the past, my relationship to those memories shifted. The meaning of long ago experiences transformed in the context of the ever-changing present. The past and the present, I've come to realize, are in constant dialogue, acting upon one another in a kind of reciprocal pressure dance. Now, she doesn't belabor that point in each essay, but I found it is revealed through the telling of the stories time and again. And that was um, really effectively done. So, um, well, she clearly is, sorry, I've just no, interject for a second. Like I, she's clearly thinking about what her memories of the past are and how accurate they are and how they've been maybe, uh, mutated by years of experience or just by time and you see that especially in in the two essays the one that dealing with her experience with Ontario 
Gilliam's yeah. film, what was uh, it called? The um, Baron of, the Adventures. of Munchenhauser or something like that. Um, it was, a, I, I didn't see it when I was a kid. So no, I, never I, got I didn't either. See yeah. it. But, but obviously her trying to like, you know, recognize that she was a child at the time. Maybe her impressions of being unsafe during that filming were just a child's <laughs> natural fear. And then coming to terms with maybe it's not. And her constant deference yeah. when she's engaging with Gilliam about like you know I don't know if I remember this right but this is how I feel and it wasn't until one of the other adults in the room at the time I guess it was Eric Idle was it who responded to her tweet or something who acknowledged yeah it wasn't safe yes Uh, and I found that very fascinating that first one and then the second one obviously the the essay on uh, Gian Gomeshi yes uh, where she's acknowledges a sexual assault having occurred and her trying to figure out why she had interpreted it or presented it in certain ways for years in her own mind and how that like she was pretty much trying to black out a certain experience yeah she had i mean she had that 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 essay begins with with that that kind of just i I don't know awful and you know it's narratively gripping revelation that when she herself realizes that she has been blacking out, repressing the, the, the reality of what happened. And, and uh, it's, it's in a conversation with, with her sibling that she is first confronted with the, the truth of, of the assault. Um, both of those essays are, are interesting for me because they make, for me as a reader at least, they, they were doubly or maybe triply kind of twisted uh, or, or um, they, the surprises in the discoveries were kind of happened multiple times. Let me, let me say in the first case, so the one in which she's remembering the abuse suffered as a child actor in the Terry Gilliam film, you're right. She's thinking, you know, I went along with that and then I knew it didn't feel right. And then it sort of revealed to her the, the real destructiveness and, and danger uh, and abuse that she was, went through. But then, you know, what's interesting is that toward the very end of that essay, she ends up, also reflecting on the, the 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 privilege of certain experiences and in, in meeting certain people and you know doing the film in a certain way as well as the joy that her child derives from watching the film which yeah. isn't at all offered up as a way of so it's all so it, so it was all okay after all or or the, or the the badness was resolved in this but she, you know she is able to move around a single issue or story from different perspectives um kind of smoothly and in the Gian Gomeshi essay i mean i went in expecting when you could start to see the shape of the essay that this was driving toward her i don't know confession and and uh shameful apology to the women came forward for her letting them down and that's not what that essay concludes it's not what it's about um if anything you know she ends up not not at all justifying in a in a legalistic or defensive sense but explaining the the reasons why she didn't come forward and and the logic why that felt like the right thing and maybe was the right thing and perhaps the women who came forward may have regrets just as she has regrets about not sort of thing but uh, but she never does that in a score settling or a smug way i mean i find that it it's about her ire is trained on the um 
the narrowness and the abusiveness of the legal system around sexual assault yeah. cases rather than, you know, herself being a failed participant in the case or those other women as, you know, which, who were criticized in the media for failing to keep their stories straight and so on, that, that she's yeah. driving at this bigger truth. I don't know. I just found that in those essays, it was unexpected to me. Um, yeah, in terms of the, the Gomeshi essay, and, and I got this in the way I approached it, obviously I'm a lawyer and I'm someone who was in law school and we there was lots of discussions in criminal law and whatnot in terms of how the legal system deals with sexual assault. And I really felt that Polly's essay really brought to heart, and she's obviously intellectually engaging with these problems as well, but all the 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 trap doors uh, that exist for women who have been sexually assaulted because things that she did to try to protect herself going forward, like consulting friends, consulting others who may have experienced these things with uh, Gameshi as well, when she's trying to come to terms or decide whether or not she should come forward or not, were things that would have been used against her had she been one of the complainants That's right. at a hearing. And it really speaks to how uh, like there's no, there's no positive recourse for women who've been ex- who've experienced this because they're going to get tried no matter what and so it's it really i felt that was one of the most powerful uh, elements of that essay and i don't think like she obviously made a decision not to come forward uh and i don't think those who did and i just i, I read the book a while ago but the, the the complainants that were there they didn't criticize her for that no not and at after all having I mean, go- I, and after having gone through that experience they were like yeah we understand exactly right? and, exactly and those are well that's what so I, I think in many yeah. in many ways polly's experience is probably the more common one among victims of sexual assault but the one that gets talked about least yeah 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 I, and, and no she that, that's a very moving scene when when lucy de couture holds her and they they connect and neither one judges the other obviously but but as I said, whereas I expected a, a kind of a I failed you essay, um, what you end up with, I, th- I think the point that you were just making really well about the more detailed aspects of, of the failings of a sexual assault case is, is that, you know, the standards of truth in the courtroom not only differ from, but, but actually forbid the way that the actual truth of survivors works. Exactly. She, she, she conveys that in this personal story while also driving home that theoretical or, or sociological point uh, seamlessly. Now, I know from some of our conversations, you express some critiques of the final essay. Can you give us some insight on that? Yeah, I mean, I... I think part of it is was simply that I was so um, appreciative and impressed by the book up to that point that it it there were aspects of it that bothered me, um, whereas hardly anything did prior to that. I mean, what I didn't like about the final essay, which is the title essay, "Run Towards the Danger," and it and it focuses on her uh, experience of a of a head injury and the concussion and the lasting results of a concussion. I, I I think I should start by saying. I found the opening pages to be an amazing description of the experience of a head injury and her description, both of the moment that, you know, her head is hit by the fire extinguisher through 
the hours later and then the years later it, it is um is painfully vivid and i appreciate that the the i think the argument she's making is that there is a limit to the ideology or the ethic of of self-care and the limits of the body and so on because what she ends up doing is is seeing this um cutting edge concussion specialist who advises her i'm i'm you know i'm 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 simplifying it but but does advise her, says the words, run toward the danger. And that basically all the ways in which she's pulled back to protect herself in, uh, while, while struggling with a concussion, she needs to um, press herself into kind of running up to and beyond the point which she can, can sort of tolerate it and handle it. And so, I, I mean, the minor critique, this is a lesser one, I guess, but I, I, I didn't love the celebration of this macho doctor in a, in a private clinic in the U.S. And, and I know that it's a bit tongue-in-cheek and she and her friend are sort of giggling at his ridiculousness. But ultimately, you know, this, 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 this guy uh, who is a product of, of the private healthcare system in the U.S. And uh, I think she says, you know, kind of like talks like a football coach and uh, his, his, the watchword is uh, attack, attack, attack. He sort of is the hero here. And, and I don't know, it didn't fit for me. Uh, but clearly that's her experience, so I, I can't question that. Um, but the, my bigger frustration with that piece was that while the, the idea of run toward the danger may work in the context of the concussion, I mean, I don't know, I'm not an expert, but... But I, it's easily absorbed into, I think, the problematic ethics of individual resilience in the face of adversity, grit, bootstrap pulling, um, which dominates not only in, in some health areas, but, but more broadly to contemporary life. And so I found myself by midpoint in that essay really struggling with the question of, you know, well, when is it not safe to run toward the danger and, yeah. and, and, and who can run toward the danger and who can't run toward the danger. And knowing and also, Polly's politics, she's probably no, no, no. self-aware of some of, of these issues. Yeah, of course, of course, of course. But, but also one of the things that I think she does so nicely in the essays running up to it is to emphasize the social networks required to do anything. But then this essay, I don't know what, what social networks are necessary to run toward the danger. So none of this is a surprise to Sarah Pauly, I'm sure. I have no doubt that she has the same critique. Also, I mean, she is an incredible individual. I, I have no doubt that she has the capacity to do things that, you know, I can't do and others can't do. But this essay to me was open to misinterpretation or, or align with the dominant ideology in ways that, that others aren't. Um, I, I think... I do give her credit, know, though, at the end, because I think obviously she's coming from a position of privilege where she has maybe not a she has obviously some social networks of support, but she also has financial means to be able to seek out a particular care outside of the Canadian medical yes. system. Something that she addresses that I think she recognizes yeah. as she she's in a position to see, seek something out that others aren't. Yep. And she does yep. come back to that towards the end of the essay. But I get what you're saying, right? It's like there's more questions that come out of that description that can lead in different directions, right? The final, the final paragraph of the, of, the, of the book, you know, she's saying, I'm in my 40s, I've changed in ways that reach far beyond the limits of my concussion recovery. I know now that I will become weaker at what I avoid and that what I run towards will strengthen in me. 
I know to listen to my body, but not so much that I can convince myself I can't do things, that I can't push myself, not so much that I can use the concept of listening to my body as a weapon against my vitality. I do the highway drive I'm nervous about. I prepare to make a film. I write the book I've always wanted to write. Run towards the danger is a way of being that I have taken into my life with me, a treasure, a spell, a sword. I, I found that that did not live up like... to the same, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, com- more complex truths that the other essays got at less explicitly. And I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, that's it. If I'm running her Oscar campaign next year, I'll be like taking out this essay because that kind of resilience narrative sells. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I mean, what, what am I saying? Like, I, 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 I'm saying this as a fawning fan who, who is both, you know, I, I think I'm probably trying to demonstrate my, my attachment engagement with the book and being able to say something other than it's perfect about it. I mean, this is not, this is, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm trying to say something that I, that, that moved me a certain way rather than to say anything about, you know, what, what she's done wrong. She's, she's incredible. So, critiques aside, though, I did find this to be one of the most moving, more moving essay collections or memoirs I've I've looked at in a long time and I think it was uh like obviously you know having been kind of in similar circles as Polly over the years and yeah. uh and some experiences obviously not the Hollywood ones but you know in terms of her social activism and whatnot to see kind of identify with some of the experiences and both of you and I are of similar age as her and we like I yes you know I, m- me and my partner my wife had similar kind of like fertility issues that go that we we dealt with so like all those things in terms of identifying with the stories that she was telling with it definitely hit home for me uh i was lucky enough again i listened to it and she does narrate it and there's a oh really yeah which isn't a surprise obviously that her narration would be quite strong Mm. uh and so it's definitely it works in audiobook as well as it you read it i think right on the page, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. I, uh, I, you know, I, I was really impressed uh, the whole way through um, by the uh, by the kind of direct, plain approach of of the writing. It, that's it was. It's not dumbed down. It's not simplistic, mm. but but it's not at all showy. Um, yeah. You know that 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 sometimes when things are described as as lyrical, you know, I'm always wary. This is yeah, not, li- it's yeah. not lyrical. It's not too cerebral. And I, you know, I know my own stuff. I can drift into the cerebral as a way of kind of trying to avoid or, or distract from things that I'm not sure about. And, and she never does that. She, it, she's telling stories and reflecting on them. I, I, I agree with you because these are all about the questions of relationships about child and childhood and adulthood, harm and repair, um, the role of storytelling, parenting, and politics uh, all all interests me. And and you know what I what I found is interesting. We haven't talked about the essay where she's reflecting on her time in Road to Avonlea. Oh yeah, which, which <laughs> is this which, when she goes takes her trip back to PEI exactly. with her kids? Yeah, yeah. It's connected to her to to as an adult going back to PEI, and you know, I I have to say as a reader I was very in, uh, I recognized myself in the world that fields a, a purchase on Sarah Pauly. I mean, I, I watched Road to Avonlea when I was that age. I've, I've joked with you before, Alex, that she was a, she attended the same band camp as me when I was a kid. But, <laughs> but you know, I have a distinct memory of, of, of her, of seeing her from afar walking across the field. And, and that was a completely 
unfair, you know, kind of like celebrity voyeuristic move on my part. I mean, I was whatever I was. I was nine. I mean, I'm not blaming myself. But but she does have a larger than life existence for many people our age in Canada. And and so the way that she does that story where she's kind of, you know, she's she's absolutely, you know, she's vicious about how much she hated the show and hated being on the show. <laughs> you know, it's all my illusions of, uh, you know, the quaint Victorian life on uh, PI so has been ruined. She, she was involved in the mobilization for global justice when we organized yeah. uh, buses to go to the Quebec City demonstrations around the free trade yes. of the Americas. And remember, we were all staying in the gym and I'm sure, like, me and a few of her friends were like, like, oh, it's Sarah Polly. And she waved. And I'm sure she hated us yeah, for, yeah, like, definitely. doing that. <laughs> and so apologies as uh, 20 yeah. years later, Sarah. Um, yeah. But, you know, it was really fascinating to see how, like, at that age, to be able to internalize what it means to be, like, the celebrity in Canada. Yes. Especially in Canada, because, yes. you know, you're it, right? There isn't much competition when it comes to someone of her stature, right? Uh, yeah. And the fact uh, that she ended up as so unscrewed up as she has is quite of an achievement. Yeah, yeah. Where that essay ends, I won't... I mean, I've probably enough spoilers here, but... but... Uh, it's wonderful where that essay goes. Like, where does that, what does her trip to PEI leave her with mm. is, is another one of those twists and turns of, of history and memory and, and the present that I found really satisfying narratively. There's also a lot in the book I thought about film and television conditions of, of, of work, I guess, yeah. um, of labor, you know? I mean, she, the work of voice training, of managing personalities, of, of being cold because of what you're being asked to do in a scene, of, of explosions going off around you. You know, and during that road to Avonlea, she's stalked by a, a man for a yeah, year or more. Staff, it was part of the yeah, staff. Like, yeah, you know, the emotional her abuse. Where's union, to be honest, right? It's something to be well, said. And she, right? yeah. and she, she uh, names that a few times, right? She's, yeah. She says, like, where, where were the union? Where was the union on, on, on checking in and out? And... Um, yeah, I mean, I think that there are times, especially in those ones about about acting, which I have no experience with, that I'm tempted to read almost as kind of a niche insights. But really, if you think about one, the way that our bodies are are disciplined by profit making under capitalism, you know, this is a this is a, a partial view of that. It's a you know, it's a spe- specific con- concrete view of of that theme, and and also. As parents, the question of what what is best for our kids, you know, I mean, I not all of us are going to say, do I want my child to become a child star or not? But but anybody who's a parent struggles with the question of what what choices do I make and what what agency, you know, do I want my child to have? How much do what what does protecting mean without being um, uh, domineering or over determining their their autonomy? That those are themes that run through. I think thumbs up for both of us. Uh, I think that's it for now because we're getting close to an hour and 10 minutes of recording, which is good. Uh, All right. There's a lot to talk about. I want to thank you, James, for joining us uh, for this episode. Uh, It is the the last one for the season. Uh, We will be back in the fall. Uh, But for now, I hope you've enjoyed uh, getting a bit of a... Uh, a taste of the Hamilton Review of Book podcasts, and if you have any recommendations, feel free to reach out to the review's homepage uh, with any ideas you might have for future episodes. Thanks a lot, James. Thanks, Alex. <laughs>